mujeres y hombres. Bienvenidos al Robcast y el primero episodio del nuevo año. Uh, or something like that. How are you, my friends? And welcome to the first Robcast of the new year. Welcome to 2019. And uh, now this episode is part one of two parts. And I need to give you some context about uh, this episode. But before I do that, it's a new year, which means new tour. My new tour is called An Introduction to Joy. And uh, basically, I'm going to go to lots of cities over the next year or two. And uh, this is like a full-scale assault on cynicism. Because you don't want to be cynical. You want the joy, right? So uh, this coming weekend, I'm going to do two preview shows here in L.A. at the Greenway Theater. Um, and the Greenway Theater is this little theater. It's 99 seats. And um, so Saturday and Sunday, I'm doing that. And I, the, I know there's a couple of tickets left for the one night, and we just added the second night. And then um, the following weekend, 18th and 19th, Tampa and Orlando. And then Florida, I see you. And then there's some Kansas City and some Omaha, Nebraska. And then there's some Tulsa and Oklahoma City. Yes, all sorts of places that I didn't go on the last tour that I'm going starting this tour with. So all you peoples out there, I'm coming your way. And obviously more dates and tickets will be up soon. So, uh, But right away here we have the preview shows, which, um, oh, it's so much fun to start from scratch and see see what we come up with. And then, um, what else was I going to say? Oh, here we go. On January 1st, my beloved friend Elizabeth Gilbert and I did a show at Largo, this club here that I do a lot of things at. And um, we went for, my friend Liz and I went for two hours. So we recorded it. And so well, what we did is broken into two parts. And now you're going to hear the first part of me and Liz live at Largo. But now, when she and I were at dinner, uh, must have been a month or so ago, talking about this show, she said, here's what we should do. We should have a song play, and we should go out before we say anything, and we should just dance. And we should dance for so long that it gets awkward. <laughs> and I said when she pitched this idea. She's like, literally, we should dance way past the socially acceptable time of dancing in public. We should just dance all the way through the song. And then I said, can't stop by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And away we went. So uh, can't stop by the Red Hot Chili Peppers played. We came out and danced for the entire song. And feel free to check out the Instagram just to see a few of our moves because they are breathtaking. Um, and I use that word breathtaking because you'll notice at the beginning of this recording, <laughs> we're both still trying to catch our breath from I don't know how many minutes, because that song is like 17 minutes long or something. So uh, that's why at the beginning of the show, you hear us riffing about what just happened for a while. So that sort of gives you a little bit of what you're getting into with this. And then next episode, um, we'll roll the second part of the show. So my friends. Here you are, me and Elizabeth Gilbert, live from Largo.
Was Ladies and gentlemen, it's 2019. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, she is the only professional karaoke singer you know. She has a side hustle as a writer. Making her Largo debut. Elizabeth Gilbert. By the second verse, it was like, either commit and double down or just go out to the parking lot and go home. You know what I mean? I don't want to roll you under the bus, but Rob was like, the whole song? And I was like, dude, the whole song. We he's rehearsed like, that. He's like. We rehearsed. You guys, that song is like 40 minutes long. And he's like, <laughs> Rob's like, any normal person would just dial it down up. We're doing the Once whole. we rehearsed it, I was like, oh, we could go easy. Yeah, easily. Yeah. yeah. Could you go again? Let's do it. I'll do it right now, man. <laughs> you don't scare me, Belle. <laughs> oh, my word. Uh, some of you are like, what did I just get into? <laughs> if you were dragged here by a friend who said to you, I know how to start the new year, this is not what you had in mind. We'll just start there. <laughs> thought leaders. That's what we are. A couple of thought leaders just sitting around. Just crafting thoughts. Just, just crafting paragraphs. Thoughts. Sentences, <sighs> paragraphs, pages. Hi, Rob. How are you? I'm excellent. I'm so glad we're doing this. Me too. Whew, do, you want, do you need a little more? No, I'm good. I'm good. Breath? I'm good. So we were talking about how to structure this. because we, I mean, we could just dance, but we figured we'd do some other things too. <laughs> Show you other aspects of our work and uh, our, our <laughs> so uh, we each came up with a series of things for the other person. So I got a clipboard that I've had for 25 years and I wrote out my questions for Liz based on conversations we've had over the years. So I'm going to ask her a question. She'll go for a while. Then you have a thing, apparently. I have a jar that I carry with me everywhere. <laughs> And in this jar are pieces of paper, and each piece of paper has one word on it. And Rob will reach in, and he'll pick out the word, and then he'll just do that Rob thing, where he just, he's just going to riff on that word. Um, so these are all words that I would love to hear what you have to say about. Ooh, I, I like this. Not a, oh, we practiced the dance, but we didn't practice anything else. <laughs> about tonight. We did that. Two other, Alec and Kristen, otherwise the two of us alone in this room doing that earlier. Which and, and, and really feeling ourselves, like really like, yeah. this is great! Yeah, yeah. In an empty yeah, yeah. room. I literally thought to myself, I'm on fire. <laughs> <laughs> because there's very few things I think that the world wants to see more than a 50-year-old white woman dancing. Um, <clears throat> but it has this but odd effect of if we can dance in public. That's What's your excuse, pretty much? This is our offering unto you. Yes. No shame. No shame. It's our New Year's gift to you. Uh, okay, I'm going to start in. Because we were at dinner a couple weeks ago, and you did this beautiful New Year's riff about how you love New Year's. But then I remember you talking about learning Italian and how you loved learning 
a new language because you had no bad memories in that language. Yes. <laughs> and then I remember you telling me when you finished a book a couple years ago, I finished that book in that house, so it's probably time to move out of that house. So there's this interesting thing, being your friend for a while now, of you understand chapters, and you have zero problems like ending a chapter and starting a new one. So that's a, is that a question? Yeah. <laughs> You've crafted these so well. Um, there's no question mark anywhere in there. <laughs> write a question Man. mark. New house, new language, new year. Change. <laughs> Comfortable with change. Um, so let's start with the new year, since it is the new year. Happy 2019, motherfuckers. <laughs> this is where we, we're, br <laughs> we're bringing in the light, 2019. Um, this is my favorite day of the year. This is my absolute favorite day of the year every single year. Yep, um, because you, it is the most generous day of the year. You get a brand new year with no dinks on it. It's got new year smell, like <laughs> no miles on it, no, tr no mistakes. You haven't made a single, you haven't fucked up unless you did this morning. <laughs> you haven't, <laughs> everyone's like, yeah, hey, I'm in. <laughs> I guess, wait 365 days, I'll give you another one. But there's something to me, I always feel this, I'm, I'm, I feel embedded with the generosity of this idea. And I know it's abstract that we've decided to call these things a year, but, but we live in abstraction, so okay. And um, you just, like you get to do it again. I had one of my favorite people in the world was my old accountant, Ernie Marshall, who was always in a good mood. And I said, why? And he said, because every, every day there's two miracles and every day you get to wake up and you get to try again and you get to go to bed, and you get to put the mistakes of the day behind you. Two miracles a day, no matter what else happened. But the ultimate miracle is a whole new year, fresh, fresh, fresh. Um, the Italian thing, I think, I think you just nailed it, but, but I can speak to it only to say that it's how I, one of the ways I pulled myself out of depression was I was like, I need, an, I need a language that doesn't have <clears throat> any trauma attached to it. Because every word in my language is about sadness at this point in my life. So I have no sad memories in Italian. Um, Goethe said if you learn a second language, you get to have a second life. So there's something about that too. Like you, it's a really good way to, to just get to create a new energy field kind of in your head. And then the moving of the houses, I, I'm, I'm a bit pathological on that. I, I lived in 14 houses in the last 25 years. Um, and, but I do think a space is spent once I've written something in it. Um, it, it's all that I've taken. You leave it all on the field. That's my feeling about everything that you do. It's all, you leave it all on the field. So by the time I'm done with a book, every idea I have is in it. Like, it's all gone, and the house is empty. It's like I just took all the energy out of that house and poured it into the book, and there's, you know, I have to go to a new place that has new energy in it. Um, yeah. I, a <coughs> friend of mine bought me the desk that I sit at to work, uh, 18 years, 19 years ago, and I realized it's been in like 15 different spaces. Bec it just, I kept moving it around to different rooms and different places, because once something was done at it yeah. in this particular room, <coughs> this room's done. Space is really important. Yeah. The space that you're in around you physically is so incredibly important. I mean, every, most women know you can't change your hair without changing your life. Um, <laughs> you know, it's why every single... You, wait, hold on. Do you all know that? Yeah. 
Women, no, women know this. This is why every woman after a breakup gets her hair cut. Um, you know, it's, it's just, you can tell. <laughs> also every, dude, men, every dude in the place is like, yeah, I pretty dude, much understand women. Dude, men, be careful when your wife cuts her hair short. <laughs> Days are numbered in that marriage. Um, it's true. It's like, she's, she's, she's changing, man. She's leaving. Something's happening. Um, but you also can't change your physical environment. My friend Martha Beck does an exercise with people where they write the, the part of their house, they, the house that they hate the most and why they hate it. And they put the adjectives about why they hate that particular room or why they hate that particular corner. And then you also, of course, when you read those adjectives, it's, it's a sort of insight into parts of yourself that, that are troubling you. And then your job is not to work on yourself, but to fix that part of your house until it's beautiful. And when it is done, you will be different. Um, so moving to, an, yeah, it's a really, it's a good little uh, way to do an end run around, um, around stagnant energy. When you, uh, when you think about this year? I'm, just, I'm turning 50 this year. We have to pause. <laughs> I have to give everybody just a pause. Before I go on, just a little pause so everybody can be like, no, you don't look. <laughs> I know, right? No, I, I know, but I am. Um, my friend Cheryl and I were talking about how every time we tell someone our age now, we just wait for that, and it often doesn't come, you know? I'm like, yeah, I'm turning 50, and then I wait, and then they're like, great, you're turning, and I'm like, you're supposed let's, to. Let's all do this together. Let's do Liz, you don't look a day over, and then you just, just shout out. Just throw a name, throw Ready? a number. One, two, three. Liz, you don't look a day over. I heard 20, I'm good. Um, <laughs> I think you could just pick the lowest one. So this year I'm celebrating by taking a whole bunch of trips with people who I love. Um, I didn't want to have a party, but I want to take particular people to particular places to have experiences with them. So that's what I'm going to do all year. Starting next week when I'm going to Mexico with my best friend from fourth grade. Um, I know. She also doesn't look 50. Re reach in the jar. Okay. Not that one! No, I'm just kidding. Courage. <laughs> oh, and then you just sit there. <laughs> uh, it's interesting to me, first off, I'm weary of anybody who uses the word courage about themselves. I generally would rather have other people say that about, it's, I think it's one of the words where you might say it to yourself, but let other people say it about you. It's like saying you're a great lover. You right. don't get to say Just that about yourself. Just let someone else say it, and yeah, then we'll, all, we'll be equally it. as, we'll be more impressed. <laughs> uh, that's a really, I'm glad that you put this one in there. For me, the whole path has always been there was the next thing to make or say. And then you just make it or say it or do it or take that step. Because if you don't, something within you will die. So when people set out to be, like, I'm trying to be courageous or brave or whatever. Wait, 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 wait. What's the next right thing for you to do? And what's the thing that if you don't do it, you will spontaneously combust like the Spinal Tap drummer? <laughs> like, what's the thing in you that if you don't do it, something within you will die? Some part of your soul will shrink. Uh, that's, to me, far more compelling. And it inevitably will require some level of courage or bravery, but that will not be the goal. That will just be something that happens along the way. So the thing is, the, the destination is the thing that you want to become, transform. Courage is the portal to get to the thing. <coughs> right, right, or what's, uh, 
Uh, there's this great line from the prophet Jeremiah. I could go 10 minutes without an Old Testament reference. Uh, <laughs> there's a fire within me. Um, I can't. It can't be contained. I, I love the idea of an inner fire. Uh, and often this exists in pre-verbal categories. So often what happens is you're trying to explain to this person why you need to move there, why you need to make this, and you're trying to make a logical, rational argument for why you need to do that book, that project, help that group of people. Generally, when something is coming from, the Greeks had this word splankton. Splankton is like uh, your guts. Uh, it's how the ancients talked about the place that you actually live from. Because there's all the stuff that we all intellectually assent to, right? Like, uh, I don't think that money brings happiness. And then there's how you actually live, which is more money would be awesome. <coughs> so there is, there is this place that we all actually live from. And transformation occurs when there's a rupture there. Because otherwise you're just rearranging intellectual furniture, which doesn't really shift things. It's when something in here no longer can function like it did. Um, and this happens, this is pre-verbal. So oftentimes the thing that is, the thing you're here for, if you're having to defend it, apologize for it, or give a rational argument for it, that's probably a sign, don't waste your time, just listen to it and follow it. And it will, it will pull out of you courage and bravery and all sorts of things. That's always how it works. And what's interesting when you listen to people, anybody who's doing something that you find interesting, and you listen to their story, how they got into this, how they made that, how they created that, there are always these small moments when they're like, and then there was no money, my credit card was maxed out, my family didn't get it, but I knew. There are always, and there are always small moments that are actually massive in the retelling. At the time, it's just this one next step. So when I <coughs> meet people who are talking about hero's journey, courage, bravery, I just want to change the world, I'm always like, oh, go, hold on, hold on. Uh, <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> Let's set aside all of that stuff from your Instagram quotes and... <laughs> What's the least sexy next step that will probably be done in C probably not that people will be watching. The, what's that one? And if you do that, now we're on to something. Have I told you my favorite definition of magic? No. Shall I? Yes. Okay. Is it big? Uh, it's huge. <laughs> um, it's big. Magic is nothing more than the next thing that wants to happen. And magicians, sorcerers, shamans, artists, uh, what you're feeling into is what looks to other people like magic is that you've just gotten to a place where you, you've become aware of the next thing that wants to happen and you've gotten out of the way or you've allowed it to happen. And then it looks like magic has happened. But all you're doing is, is being a, a, a you're in, in stewardship to a thing that wants to occur now. Um, and that's how magic is made, um, which I suppose sometimes requires a bit of courage. I remember sitting in a church meeting back in a former life. <laughs> and there were these Tuesday meetings for people who ran the church. But I had been reading a bunch of quantum physics. And I kept seeing these connections between quantum physics and the first chapter of Genesis, Hebrew poetry, like you do. 
And that's exactly why I like hanging out with you, Rob. <laughs> but I remember thinking, and this, I was doing all these drawings like on the back of napkins of like dimensional physics and I started in a Trinitarian universe that is a constant energy flow in which you enter into a dance that already is happening. You're singing along with a song that's already going. Yes, yes. And, uh, but I remember, and then I thought, oh, all these drawings, I should have like a custom-made whiteboard and take it around the country and do this hour and a half talk. And then I went and I ordered a, had a custom-made whiteboard for $12,000 to do my first tour. And I remember seeing those meetings <coughs> and I'd be thinking about these ideas and these people would be talking about very, they all got salaries for running this and thinking, I just wanted them all to be, like, could you guys please be quiet? I'm wrestling with simultaneous duality as it relates to the Hebrew word. Like, yeah. it, it, to try and rationally and explain. And then Barb is like, what are we going to do about people parking in the No, no exactly. Parking? It was that sort of, and, re, and realizing there's no argument. There's no rational. And people were like, you know, the kids thing, we got to like, Please, uh, I have work to do. Um, you just sound awful. And, and that was one of my first experiences with this thing. If I don't try this, something within me will have settled and given up. And yet, if I do try this, it could be a colossal failure. I had a couple of close friends who were like, this is the dumbest idea ever and you're going to publicly humiliate yourself because no one goes out and does like clubs because you're a pastor like this sort of thing um and that's why I'm, I'm so interested when people it's like if you can create enough space and get enough deep breaths and we can find out what's lurking in that funky mysterious heart of yours and oftentimes the problem is people can't come up with very clear articulate language for it because it exists in a deeper, it exists in a place that's deeper than your brain. Your brain serves it. And what happened in the modern world for many people is the brain became the God. I can't understand it and I can't explain it rationally, so therefore I must deny it. And in th for thousands of years, human civilizations, listening to your intuition, the brain was a servant, not a master. So again, my friend Martha Beck has a great story that she, the first time I ever talked to her, she told me this story. We were sitting in a green room and she just, and I was like, okay, you and I need to be friends for all of time because this is the greatest thing I've ever heard. Um, she said to me when she was doing her, getting her third degree from Harvard like you do, like we both have. Um, <laughs> uh, she was getting her PhD from Harvard and she was in sociology and she was doing a PhD on, on, on women who had risen to, positions in the world that most women are not in. And she was traveling around in all different realms, talking to powerful, interesting, creative women who were doing things that, that are just way beyond what a lot of women are doing, and trying to figure out how they got there. And she said that every single conversation was the same. She would sit down with them, she'd have a tape recorder, they'd start to talk, and they'd start to sound like business school manuals, where they would say, you know, I fostered contacts, and I, um, you know, I got rid of toxic relationships, and I, I, I worked harder than everybody else, and I got up at five o'clock in the morning. And she just kept thinking, this isn't it, because that's what everyone is told, that's what everyone does. Why are you here? And, and she would just push and push and push, and they would just keep spouting mundane sort of white noise. And then she'd push to the point where every single one of them would finally just drop something, look over their shoulder, 
and go, can you turn that tape recorder off? You want to hear what really happened? And what really happened was a mystical vision. Every single one of them would say, I heard a voice. I had a dream. I, there was, a, there was a, a force compelling me. I was told to move to Baltimore. I was told, I was instructed, and they'd all followed it. And, it. and it had nothing to do with any of that other stuff. I just like the turning off. Like, can we just, can we be honest about what's yeah. actually going on here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everybody at some level is a mystic. If you listen. Yes. Oh, that's good. Oh, okay. Should we keep going? Is that good? Yeah, are you, you guys done? Or are we good? <laughs> <laughs> okay, this one. Here's my, here, here is my observation. You survived a massive hit. Now here's what I mean. Everybody wants to get a hit in whatever line of work they're in. But what I noticed being your friend is you're never introduced without Eat, Pray, Love somewhere in there. Everything that you've done since then, that work gets mentioned. Everything you do since then, that work gets compared to it. But what I noticed right away is that you, that there is a, there's an underbelly to having a giant hit. Um, that everybody wants the hit, but w watching up close, and I have a couple of friends in television, one in music, and you who got these huge hits, but then their life kept going, is that there's like an underbelly to the hit, which is everything you do from here on out won't sell as much or be as widely known, and everybody will feel free to remind you of that. Yep. <laughs> and yet, <coughs> excuse me, you, you made peace. I've never seen you be anything but kind and gracious and large and welcoming when somebody wanted to talk about something that you did 15 or 20 years ago. So you, at some level, made peace with your hit. Does that make sense? And I think If you really go see John Mellencamp and he doesn't sing Jack and Diane... Right, right. Won't you be so I sad? I want and my aren't you back. so glad that he's continued to make music, but don't you really want to hear him sing Jack and Diane? I do. You know, like, yes. how many times has Bruce Springsteen sung Born to Run? He doesn't, like, right. he doesn't complain about it. It's like, it's an honor to have yes. made something that people care about. Yeah. I, I am, I've always, I do this work because I want it shared. And, and so, and I also don't feel like it's the job of anybody in the world to keep track of my artistic career other than me. So when people come up to me and they say, I loved your first book, you know, Eat, Pray, Love is my fourth book. I don't go, Eat, Pray, Love is my fourth book. <laughs> like, I don't expect you. It's not your fucking job. It's not your fucking job to keep track of what I've done. It's not, none of, nothing about my life is your job. Nothing about my life is your job. So how you see me isn't my job, you know? So if somebody comes up to me at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport and says, I loved your first book, I know what they're talking about and we can start there, you know? And if they say to me after that, do you think you'll ever write another book? <laughs> I say, just keep trying, you know? I don't know, it sure is hard, you know, but um, I say no, because I'm rich, I don't have to, because I wrote Eat, Pray, Love. <laughs> Do you know, like, why? I, 
can't imagine taking a petulant stand against any of that. What does it have to do with me? It doesn't have anything to do with me. Um, it's just something that I'm lucky enough to have been part of. So when I talk to somebody about Eat, Pray, Love, we're both talking about a phenomenon that we were part of. You know? Truly. And I'm like, I know. And they're like, crazy. They're like, they made a movie out of it. I'm like, I know. <laughs> Where are you from? Like, it's so easy to not be a dick. It's so easy. That's my answer, Rob. We're, that's my answer, Pastor Rob Bell. That. And and the the, all, the other lucky thing is I have this engine in me that was that's part of my operating software that I didn't put there that just keeps saying write books, write books, write books. So so that's my only business is to attend to that. You know that's my business. The rest of it is, is none, I felt the same way about it. It's so weird. I've had this, it's, when I had years of rejection letters, sending short stories out and getting rejected and getting rejected, and I started sending short stories to the New Yorker when I was 18. I was like, you know what, you guys should look at this. I wrote this in English class. Um, you know, but I, I, I just felt like, hey, I made a thing. You know, where do things like this, I've heard of, I've heard of this magazine, I'm going to send them a little letter and maybe they'll want to put it in their little magazine that they do. Um, they didn't, they still don't. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but I, you know, I, I just kept putting stuff out in the world and I, I remember this feeling, I remember getting, like, you know, I've got years of it's files of rejection letters and I remember getting a rejection letter once from Harper's back in the 90s, you know, and it was another rejection letter and I remember this feeling this like weird bubbling hilarity when I got it, and I was a waitress and a bartender, and I remember opening it up, and it was like, thank you very much, we blah, blah, blah. And I remember reading it and being like, it is adorable that you guys think I'm gonna stop doing this. <laughs> Just because you keep saying no. Like, this has nothing to do with you. Like, this is what I do. This is what I do. So, it's what I did when I was nobody. It's what I did when I was somebody. It's, it's just what I do. I, uh, years and years ago, there was this, this guy came to me, he's like, I want to be a speaker. I was like, well, you can follow me around every day if you want. That's all I got for you. And then, <laughs> so he started coming with me everywhere. He would come to the therapist with me. I just brought him everywhere. It was awesome. And then he started getting invited to go speak places. And he had Did this, you go with him? No, no. I would just, because I, I didn't want to know what happened. I only wanted to have his experience, because I was only interested in him. Yeah. So I didn't go out and he'd speak, but then he would come back. And he like, it went terrible. He's like, why? He's like, well, I went out and I started with a couple jokes. I had some profound things. It was like a sermon, but I started with, and it wasn't, they didn't think it was funny. And then I just like kind of collapsed. I kind of caved. And quite quickly it was like, oh, your joy was in their hands. Like you walked out and handed this room full of people all the power. And you handed them your joy. And then you waited for them to give it back. And then... You read their responses. Maybe they were thinking deeply about what you said. But you read their response as you weren't funny, profound, interesting. And it's like comedians talk about you have to go out and kill it or it will kill you. Um, and I remember with him, like, okay, here's how it works. You're going to get a microphone and you're going to go out there 
and you're going to have an experience. And people are going to be welcome to join you in that or not. But you're going to have the experience. And to this day, I, like tonight, I, I feel that more than ever. I do this thing. I'm you should gonna have seen us backstage. We're such we're like giddy. We are, we're, we're so like, geez. we get to go do this. We like this more than ever. We love this. Love it. Uh, <laughs> book, talk, except whatever it is that we do. I'm going to go have an experience, and I'm going to witness to it, and you are welcome to witness to it as well. But there's no like wall here, and that. That's how the thing works. Everyone's invited, no one's required. Correct. You know, that's Correct. it. Um, I love that. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Reaching my jar. Resilience. Yeah. <laughs> Resilience. Well, there's this interesting thing. Uh, <coughs> Every December, I go through this weird death where I, do I want to keep doing this? Like I have to put it, I have to put the whole thing back like this. Do I have anything more to say? And Chris and I have this running joke that maybe I'll just go sell shoes because I think I would be good at it. <laughs> um, but I think part of resilience you have to keep going back to you have options. And where is the joy? And what is the thing that you have to do? And if you don't do it, something within you will die. Um, and that's, you have to keep returning to it. Now, uh, I, did, I dug up a memory recently. Because somebody mentioned uh, they were writing a memoir, and I started thinking, if I were to tell my story, what's my first memory? And my first memory is the house on Sandalwood Drive in Okemos, Michigan, Briarwood Subdivision, you know where it is. <laughs> there was a bus stop in front of a house, and it was 1972, I was two, my sister was born in the fall of that year, but these high school kids would go, and elementary school kids, and meet at the bus stop, and I got in this habit in the mornings of getting out the front door of the house at two years of age, and pulling my pants down, and peeing off the porch, and I would gather a crowd of kids. <laughs> Absolute first recollection of being a human being was on an elevated square area, releasing a gift to creation, and it being appreciated and received by a group of people, a group of students. I think resilience is related to return. You have to keep returning to who you are. There's this great story about Rabbi Akiva, lived 2,000 years ago, great master rabbi. One night he's walking home to his village. It's dark, it's late, it's foggy, and he misses the turnoff to his village. And he ends up, instead of going to his village, going down the other way down the path, and he ends up at the Roman military outpost that was in his region. And he gets up to this massive wall, and at the top of the wall is a guard, and he hears a, a, a noise up top, a rustling, and the guard yells down, who are you, and what are you doing here? And the great Akiva says, excuse me? And the rabbi, and the, and the soldier yells, 
who are you and what are you doing here? And Akiva says, how much are they paying you? And it's quiet. And the soldier says, excuse me? And Akiva says, how much are they paying you? And the soldier shouts down, 10 denarius a week. And Akiva says, I'll pay you twice that to come to my house every morning and ask me those two questions. <laughs> who are you and what are you doing here? Some of you got that slow burn. I added a coda just for the you were like, wait, what were the two questions? Come on, guys. <laughs> Should have seen that coming up from the fort, but okay. Um, and so oftentimes resilience is seen as, I think it's something that is birthed within you, which is this is who I am. This is what I'm here to do. I'm going to do this regardless of the outcome. There's something in it that will always, it will probably also be some dance between your joy and the world's need. Um, and if it's all you and nothing about the greater good, there's probably something off. And if it's about the greater good, but it doesn't somehow light you up, that will only last so long. Uh, the number of nonprofits around the world I've noticed where they're there to save the world and they're all miserable <laughs> because they got so caught up and we're going to feed all these people, which is great, but not attending to their own sort of joy and grace and fire. You are loved whether you feed anybody or not. Yep. Let's start there. You are a divine daughter. You are a son of the divine exactly as you are. Or how about this one? There is nothing to prove. <laughs> or how about this one? There is no ladder to climb. You're already there. Sometimes you need that. But if you sit long enough in that place, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. Grace stacked on grace stacked on grace. There's nothing you could do to earn that which you've had the whole time. You've been at the party the whole time. But if you sit in that space long enough, these energies are going to start to percolate. Okay, I got it. I heard the thing. I got it. Uh, is there anybody I can help? Can I? Something wells up within you. It's like an overflow. Now I got to go help somebody um, because it naturally overflows. And if you stay too long in the overflow, you start to get empty, and then you need to sit and realize and return. It's like a loop that you're just endlessly within. And resilience for me is somewhere in that loop. These are good words. I think you have, you're pretty good with words. I'm Not as good as I am as a dancer. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, They're just one word things, but. So our friend Glennon Doyle, yeah. Oh, yeah. who some of you may know and love, um, was telling me the other day about a moment of reckoning that she had when her marriage was ending and she didn't know what to do and she found herself in the middle of the night Googling, should I get a divorce? <laughs> Literally. And what, what, the reason I wanted to say this is because she said something really beautiful, which is that the, the answers that you need will change throughout your life. The direction will change. The interests will change. The passions will change. The, the desire of your heart will change. Um, but where you find it will never change. It's always going to be here. So if you're asking Google if your marriage is over, <laughs> you might want to look elsewhere for that information. 
you know? Um, so yeah. that's, so the, I think resilience is returning yeah. here to find what the next thing that wants to happen is. Um, because it won't always be the, did somebody ask a question? Oh. Um, they were cheering you on. All right. I'm not peeing or anything. It's not as exciting as what you were doing. But um, Well, we're only partway through. <laughs> I've also heard that, I remember hearing once on, um, on, on Being, um, Krista Tippett was talking to a guy who's done a lot of work on resilience, and he said that there's three things you need. He studied people who have been through absolutely traumatic, horrific things that have destroyed everyone around them, but not them. So how is it that this person went through this genocidal experience and they, they're kind of okay? Or yes, this right. person, you know, went through this abuse and they're okay. And this, you know, and, and they're, not, they're not wrecked by it. And he's identified three things. One is you have to believe that life has meaning. Yeah. You have to believe that your life has a particular meaning. And you have to have community. Yeah. Um, you have to have others around you uh, to support your meaning. And uh, yeah. if you need at least one of those. Um, yeah, yeah. Best to have three. So that uh, the Google search is interesting to me because the goal of any worthy tradition is for you to grow up. The go like maturity is the technical word. Like the, any guru, apostle, shaman, mystic teacher that tells you you need them for the whole rest of the journey. Any leader worth their salt will be a guide at this juncture of the journey to help you hopefully get what they have to give you so that you can keep going. But the goal is to grow up. And what happens often is an institution often needs you to stay where you are because that's how the donations keep coming in. Um, and so the thing stagnates when in fact somebody who truly has your best interest in mind is like, hey, I, I want to help you grow up so that you won't have to keep coming to me no matter how many helpful I am right now that ultimately you'll begin to learn, whatever was in me, you'll begin to see is in you. I was just listening to it more closely, and you were fascinated with that, so we hung out, but then you learned to listen to the spirit within you. And then you grew up, and you didn't need to Google like you used to. Yeah. By the way, Violet, my uh, nine-year-old daughter and I, she was just showing me this game this week, Google Feud, which is, um, it'll give you a sentence. You choose like culture, name, something, and it gives you a sentence people search for, like, how do I, and then you have to guess the top, whatever, 10 searches that Google has for that phrase. So my daughter and I, by, literally by the hour, we sit on the couch, and she'll be like, can you fix a, and I'll be like, one more? No, dad. Uh, broken arm? Yeah, right, broken heart. Right, it's fascinating, and it shows you what people are searching for. Okay. I know, enough of that stuff. How long have you had that clipboard? Oh, man, like 25 years. Isn't it strong? Um, <laughs> strong clipboard. It's a strong move. I, Rob, I know you love titles. You, uh, strong clipboard is a good name clipboard. for a book. You know what this clipboard says? It says, I'm a man of the present, but I'm a little analog. You know what I mean? Just a little. I do like CDs. Okay. Uh, let's talk about grief. Because you and I had this, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago. We were laughing, but it was um, profound what you were saying about you lost beloved Rhea last year. By the way, that was last year. I know, that was last year. And you and I were talking about how central to our work 
is we want to help people acknowledge the full spectrum of the human experience. From joy to euphoria, to sadness, to grief, to loss, to gut-wrenching heartache. That if you don't acknowledge all that's present within you, then it gets pushed down, and then it's haunting you, there's a shadow, and it'll come out in all sorts of ways. And uh, you were laughing, saying that we go around telling people, like, sit with it. But that your grief over the loss of Rhea, you were like, well, actually, on this one, I, I got back to work. <laughs> and we were like, sometimes you sit in your grief, but sometimes you work through your grief. And, and the paradox of those two responses to grief, and that in your grief, you wrote a book that has nothing to do with what you were going through, which I think is a profound um, like dance there between those two responses. Once again, no question mark whatsoever. <laughs> I'm like three questions in a row with no... You know, if, I, if, if you were in the audience and it was open mic, I would be so hard on you, right? I'd be like, what's your question, <laughs> sir? Um. <laughs> so, okay, let me find this, what I want to say. The reason that I have created the world that I live in is because all the ones that were available made me want to cut myself. Mm -hmm. um, all of them. You know, the, everything I saw, I was like, I can't, I would, I can't. You know, it was just one modality after another was handed to me and, and felt like death. Um, from the conventional, you have to get married and have two kids and work at the same job for 40 years, live in the same town forever, to its opposite, which was offered as you can be an artist, but you'll be suicidal, um, because to be an artist is to suffer. So that sucks too. So what's the point of leaving conventional life to go live an unconventional life if the answer is still the assumption of suffering? It was... You know, my whole life has been about inventing a world that I get to live in that's joyful and rich and love-based and passionate and exciting. That invention is so deliberate in me, it doesn't stop with grief. So nothing yet has come and hit me that has interrupted the creative invention of my life. So Rhea's death has been the most creative experience of my life. How am I going to do this? You know, how am I going to lose the one person in the world I can't live without? How am I gonna do that in a way that's in accordance with the way that I insist on living because to not live in that way, I might as well not live, you know? So I think of grief as a, an incredible artistic challenge. Um, and, and it's, um, so one thing I wanted to say about our dancing is, what, the, what I almost said at the end of our dancing was, that's what grief looks like. That's what grief looks like in my world. 
I've danced this year. Rhea died January 4th, so we're three days away from the one year anniversary of her death. Almost immediately after her death, within a week or two, I started dancing. And I've danced every day. And it's my response to the way that grief settles in your bones, the way that sorrow, the, you know, you're taught this stuff, you guys, and you don't have to fucking eat it. You're taught that things look away. You're taught that you're supposed to feel away. You're taught and shown these modalities. It's people doing their best, but you get to find it yourself. And for me, I couldn't bear the physicality of the weight of it. And, and the opposite of that weight is dance. And I'm no dancer. Yes, you're a great dancer. <laughs> I know, but I'm, this is nothing I've ever done. You know, this is nothing I've ever done. It was following some sort of a command that said, move through this so that it can move through you. And sometimes the dancing looks like that. Other times it's Leonard Cohen and I'm weeping. And I'm moving through my weeping physically. I refuse to lay in it. You know, um, there's times where it pins you down, but I, I, I'm just, my whole life is about this like, getting out of this wrestling embrace that things, things got me in. You know, depression has got me pinned. I'm going to learn Italian and flip it. You know, like grief, like grief has its foot on my neck. Dance out of it. You know, it's just this like, it's this stubborn, I won't stay pinned, even for Rhea. Because it's not an honoring of Rhea to stay pinned. It's not what she was. You know her. She wasn't that, you know? Um, so in that, what happened, too, is that I had a book due. Um, so I had a novel before Ray got sick, when I was still married, when life was on a certain path. Um, I had sold an idea for a book, a novel, about New York City showgirls in the 1940s. I've always wanted to write a book about promiscuous girls who do not get punished for being sexual. It's an impossible story to find in literature. Um, and and I... She, she gets kicked out Under the, the wheels of the right, train! Right. You know? Madame Bovary, drink the poison. It's like a death, death, de desire, death, desire, death. It's not been my experience with desire. It's not been a lot of women's experience with desire that you usually don't have to commit suicide because you wanted to have sex. Um, but most novels are about that, right? So like I wanted to write, I wanted to write about like just, just these girls who are just wild and passionate and free and, and New York City in the 1940s and I just pictured, I had a, I always have a feeling like back here about what a book should feel like and it wanted, I wanted this book to feel like a, a tray of champagne cocktails just getting knocked back, really light. So I sold this book called City of Girls, and then did research on it for years, was in the middle of working on it. Rhea calls, they found masses in tumor, pancreas. Within three weeks, I've left my marriage and changed my entire life and told her that she's the love of my life and I'm gonna take care of you until you die. Pivot, <laughs> fucking pivot, you know, um, because that's what wanted to happen next. That's what had to happen next. Um, I had a vision of my life if I didn't do that, and that vision was the most horrible thing I'd ever seen. So it had to be this, right? So I just forget, forget about the novel, I don't care. 
I don't, you know, just I, I, 18 months of horror going through Rhea's death. Um, they gave me an extension, and then two weeks after she died, I said to my agent, I, I need another extension. I can't write that book this year. This is crazy. It's due in August. She died in January. I hadn't written a word of it. I just had the research. And, and my agent called. This is a completely true story. My agent calls my publishing house and says, you know, Liz is not going to be able to deliver that book. And they were like, oh, no, she has to. It's due. And I had this weird thought where I was like, do you guys know who I, who I am? <laughs> like, kind of a big deal. Like, he would sort of... I can't get another extension. And of course I could, and she, call, and she said, um, we can fight this. But what happened in that moment when she called and said, oh no, it's due on August 1st, was I felt this thrill in me that rose. And it was the first zhuzh that I felt after Rhea's death of life, of like the, the challenge, the fight, the, the you know, there's that great line from Winston Churchill that says, we, we have not come all this way and crossed all these mountains and valleys and deserts because we're made of sugar candy. No one in this room is made of sugar candy. We are all the descendants of thousands of generations of survivors. We like challenge. You need it. You need to be chafed up against something in order to find your muscle, to find... So for me, what I wanted, what I thought I wanted, was for them to say, poor Liz, she's just lost her partner. She's been through this horrible experience, of course, darling, rest with a cold, a cold napkin over your head. But what I wanted to happen here in the pre-verbal place was for somebody to say, you've got six, five months from the darkest grief to write a book that goes down like a pile of champagne cocktails, go. <laughs> That's what this wanted. That's life, you know? And, and the fear that came with that of, I don't know if I can do that, was the animating force that made me be like, oh, I can do that. Let's go, let's go. And I remember, and the last piece of it was a friend of mine who's a, a wonderful novelist, and I, and I figured out, okay, I've got this much time, and, I've got, and I'm, gonna, I'm gonna turn this thing in on, I turned it in on July 31st, because I'm perverse. It was due August, <laughs> it was due August 1st, but I was like, motherfuckers, you're getting this book on July 31st. You are getting, you know, and it was just, and that life force is the opposite of dying. You know, and, and, and my, in my mind, what I, it's not, what I did was not denial. What I did was resilience. Because denial would have been to pretend that a horrible thing hadn't just happened. Or to, to sort of like shuffle back into work, to take a bunch of antidepressants, to push down. But what this, creativity is the engine of resilience in my life. So, Create, 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 create. That's been my response. Whatever hits you, create. Death, create. Divorce, create. Pain, create. Failure, create. Success, create. What should I do next? Create, 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 create. Constant creative response. And so I started this book in the depths of grief and I ended it in this joy of having felt like I just had a bunch of champagne cocktails. And I wrote the happiest, lightest, sexiest book of my life. Um, I, wrote this, I wrote the sexiest book of my life while grieving my, my lover sleeping in an empty bed, crying every night, and waking up the next day and writing about sex and joy and, and pleasure and pulling myself from there to here um, and feeling Rhea being like, babe, do it, come on, go, show them, slay, because that's who she was. 
know? So don't, if I'd had to go to a grief circle, <laughs> you know, which great, if you have to go to a grief circle, go, but like for me, that's not where it's gonna be. That's not where my resilience is gonna be found. It's in the, that, the response that I felt in my mind to the thrill in my gut when they were like, oh no, this is due. And I was like, oh, it's on. You know, that was me coming back to life. You're welcome. You know, there's a, oh, oh I, you know what word I'm hoping for? Zhuzh. Zhuzh. <laughs> Actually, though, there's, uh, there's an old poem. Uh, there's an old poem. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. What's interesting about this old poem, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the waters, and the spirit was hovering over the waters. Which is interesting because in ancient consciousness, waters are chaos, void, abyss, but spirit hovers over them. And the imagery of hovering is like a bird fluttering its wings right above it. And then in this old poem, spirit descends in to darkness, chaos, formless, void, abyss. And out of it comes all of this color, texture, diversity according to their kinds. So it's when you come across the abyss, the darkness, the, the rug has been yanked out from under you. Uh, spirit is hovering there somewhere. Oh. And so part of the spiritual path is your learning in those moments when you're most like, it's dark, formless, void, empty, and abyss. Oh, these are the primordial forces of creation. This is how the thing works, because it's out of that that comes according to their kinds. Things get separated. Distinctions get made. That's the explosion of creation and creativity. And you see... Sort of, bell, everybody. Well, what's interesting is, you, uh, is the, the human reflex, especially if you're not in a, in a setting that understands this, the reflex is often to shut down and that's like, I have nothing. Whoa, 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 wait. At the moment when you most want to put your head down, fold your arms, and just retreat, is, oh, no, no, pay attention here. Um, how, many, uh, how many organizations that help people who are suffering, when you, when you go to the website and you go to the about section, the founder is like, I lost my mom to cancer. My brother was hit by a drunk drug, and I started. It's always in that moment, darkness, form of sleep, that spirit was hovering. And somebody was just paying attention. It's how creation works. Okay, yeah. I have to tell you guys this very perverse thing. But it's perverse and beautiful. <laughs> which is that when the, the worst, the worst of when Rhea was dying, and there were other elements that, that happened during that year that just, it was such an awful, it was so awful. And it was awful for other compounded reasons. It just... It was horrible. Um, and, and I remember going out of our apartment one day and I was so broken and, and walking down 10th Street, just destroyed and starting to pray, walking down East 10th Street in the village. And the weirdest fucking prayer bubbled up within me that I, I can barely even say now because it was so weird, but it was so true. And it was so, 
exciting. And I just looked at the sky and I said, make this even worse for me. Because like shit had gotten, it was so bad. Um, and I just said, whatever you're doing, just do it. Like, don't half kill me. <laughs> like, it, whatever you're trying to make me into through this, do it 100%. Do it. Grind me into dust. And let's do this. Because I don't see yet what this is that you're trying to teach me, because this is horrible. So you're going to have to make it worse so that I can see and get the point of what it is I'm supposed to be learning or growing into. Because right now, this is just medium hell. <laughs> so I'm going to need you to dial it up. Right. I meant it. And I was like, do it. Come on. Bring it. Like, what, is, what are you doing? Like, because just things were happening that was like, and it got worse. Cool thing about that. You is say when it like, you like, and then it got worse. Right? Because it, it was exciting, my prayer was answered. But the great thing, the great thing about that prayer is that when it gets worse, you're like, oh yeah. It's an odd clarity. It's like, yeah, this is what I asked for. And in that, finally it happened where it, I was so, my, whatever the thing, the shards where I saw it, and I was like, okay, this is what you're asking me to shed. This is what I can no longer be. This is the me who has to die now. I'm on it. Got it. And it turned from there. Um, but, but sometimes you need, you know, I do feel like the universe tries to change you first with gentleness and bliss and right, love. Right, and then right. if that doesn't work, they bring a hammer. And if that doesn't yeah. work, yeah. they bring the wrecking ball. And if that doesn't work, they drop a building on you. And, and I was like, drop the building on me. I don't yeah. see it yet. You know, um, but the willingness, like I think my operative word is willingness. Like I'm willing to go with this. I, I understand that this is all for me. I understand that you're doing this for me. Just make it a little more clear because I'm a little dense. So you might have to punch harder, you know, and then it came and I got it. Um, I've had that. Um, <laughs> whatever, um, whatever I'm supposed to be learning here, I'm not learning. I've had prayers like, so either I'm a crap student right. or you're, you're a crap, crap teacher. teacher. <laughs> or I'm in the wrong, like, I need to go back to an earlier lesson that apparently I skipped. But like, just make it louder or harder because I'd like to get it. I'm in. Look at me, I'm in. But I'm not getting it. This is how to pray. That's oh, how to pray. On, it's zhuzh. a weird way to pray, but it's it. Zhuzh. Come on, zhuzh. <laughs> <laughs> 